Would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 11 as we continue our I Am series. And this is a familiar passage, I think, to many of us. But if you're sort of new to the church or, or new to the Bible, uh, I'm going to be reading a few verses out of an extended account of, oh, it's Children's Church. Sorry, forgot about Children's Church. Uh, if you've got, I don't know, a little one, send them out that door. Um, so this is an extended account. We're going to read just a few verses out of it uh, where Jesus has three friends who live in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're all siblings, but Lazarus is sick and he, uh, and he dies. And so this is the account of, of uh, Jesus arriving in Bethany uh, and what happens after Lazarus dies. Would you stand in honor of God's word? I'm going to pick up in verse 17 in chapter 11. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you help us to believe, to know, to take to heart that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Uh, we're going to look at three different locations. Uh, this account takes place in Bethany, which is uh, two miles south, uh, east of Jerusalem. And Bethany and Jerusalem are each about two miles north of Bethlehem. So uh, we want to look at all three of those locations. And we're going to start in Bethany here in John 11. Um, so I don't know, you might be here and you're wondering why we're exactly we're reading from John chapter 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus uh, during Advent. And you're going, oh, well, it's part of the I Am series. That makes sense. The rest of you are going, no, 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 this doesn't make any sense at all. Because John chapter 11 is what you hear at memorial services or at Easter. And it's Advent. And this is crazy talk. But just hang in there. Um, it's strange, right, to, to head into Christmas uh, when... There are clouds and shadows of grief and loss and pain. Uh, the world's telling us to rejoice, rejoice. Even churches are, are, are doing a pretty good job of that too, right? Beating that rejoice drum. But what do you do when you're not joyful, you're sorrowful? Uh, what do you do when you're dealing with death? 
Uh, many of you have been praying uh, for, for my, my family, for my dad. You know, he was placed in hospice uh, over a month ago. And I was in Norfolk a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I really thought I was saying goodbye to my dad. He had a rough weekend. And then we got to go back over Thanksgiving weekend, and he's better. So anyway, I want to just pause real quick and thank you for your, your prayers for my dad. Um, you know, we're calling him Lazarus. <laughs> but he's still in hospice. I, I, don't, I don't know how many days he's got. The Lord does, but I don't. But we're dealing with that, right? I'm not alone in that. Half of this room is probably dealing with somebody in your family, some friend. You don't know if they're going to live to the new year. Or somebody has passed away recently. And you've got this juxtaposition, right, at Christmas of, you know, joyfulness and, and, and woefulness. And Christmas is wonderful, but it's also sorrowful. It can be full of wonder. I mean, especially for kids. But the older you get, like the more you move along that timeline of our lives, the more we enter into sorrow, the more loss we experience. And I don't know when that tipping point is that Christmas is more sorrowful than joyful, but some of you know exactly what that feels like. You're kind of wondering, Lord, how, how, how is this the plan? How did this become the plan? I, didn't, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. And you wouldn't be alone in that. So, John 11. Martha and Mary are dealing with death. They're sorrowful. Uh, these are siblings. They've outlived their brother, right? Um, and parents should not have to bury their kids. And Siblings, you know, you, you just kind of don't want to be in that place where you start burying your brothers or your sisters. Um, it's hard. And John tells us that Lazarus had been sick and that messengers had been sent to Jesus. Um, Jesus was a, a, a long ways away on the other side of the Jordan River, but, but he starts heading back and they send messengers and Jesus and his disciples, when they arrive in town, they find the whole village of Bethany uh, at Mary and Martha's house or gathered at the tomb and, and everybody's grieving this loss. People have even come from Jerusalem to, to grieve. And Martha comes out to meet Jesus. Mary stays back at the house. Martha comes out to kind of like the, the edge of town. Jesus hasn't quite entered the town yet. And she tells him the news that Jesus already knew that Lazarus had succumbed, right? He was dead. And commentators are, are kind of conflicted over what Martha says and what she means when she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, you know, ask whatever you want and God's going to give it to you. Is, is Martha making a statement of faith? Is she ex expressing her trust in Jesus at that, in that moment? Or is she kind of blaming him, right? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. We don't really know. We, don't, you know. we can't hear the tone of her voice. But let me just say this. Even if it is an accusation, it's still a testimony. E even if it is like, Lord, you could why, why are you late? Why didn't you come? You know, like putting blame on him. She, it still comes from a place of faith. You could have healed him. You could have made him better, right? And so she still believes that, that Jesus has this power to, to heal and to help and to save. Um, 
But Martha didn't know what John tells us, that it wasn't just Jesus kind of being slow or even maybe a little bit neglectful or prioritizing other things, you know, and, 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 and being late to, to help. John tells us that Jesus was actually being intentional. <clears throat> Mary's thinking maybe he's neglected this, but John's telling us, no, this was according to plan. He intentionally delayed his arrival in Bethany. If you've got John 11 open, look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, you know, and this is the non sequitur, he loves them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why would he stay if he loves them? You'd expect verse 6 to read, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything and made a beeline for Bethany, right? Like, we got to help Lazarus. Come on, everybody. But he didn't. It says he, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? How, how could delay be God's plan? We don't understand, right? Why would Jesus deliberately delay his coming, allowing his friend to get sicker and sicker, even terminally so? Why would he expose Lazarus to prolonged suffering? Why would he expose the sisters to sorrow upon sorrow, the whole village, even people from Jerusalem grieving over something he could have prevented? And I don't want to dismiss any of those questions. All of those questions are valid. But I think Jesus' response is significant. I think it needs to be front and center. And if Jesus had come earlier and had healed Lazarus of his illness, it would have been a remarkable miracle and people would have been rejoicing and we still might have had that episode included in John's gospel. But that's not the point. Jesus didn't come to Bethany to heal Lazarus and say something like, hey, I am the recovery and the healer. He came to Bethany to state to the world that I am the resurrection and the life. How can anyone have understood that claim unless there was an actual resurrection? Right? How else could Martha and Mary understand the impact of Jesus saying that I'm the resurrection and the life unless he could prove it? Jesus didn't come to Bethany to heal Lazarus. Jesus came to Bethany to destroy death. Jesus came to Bethany to reverse the curse. Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, uh, you know, death and and, and sorrow and mourning and pain and tears, uh, especially, they don't make sense during Christmas. Like, that's why it's good for us to remember that Jesus came in order to destroy death, right? He comes to this cave at Bethany where they've laid Lazarus' body. I'm picking up in verse 38 now, if you want to look at John 11 again. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave, like the man made cave that they cut into the rock. And a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And this is crazy. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, 
for he has been dead four days. You have to appreciate the realism of the Bible, okay? It's not covering up and it's not painting a gloss and putting it on a you know, fuzzy, beautiful aura. It's like, no, this is real. This is real death. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then when he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had, been, who had died came out. And his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So right there at this cave in Bethany, Jesus destroys death. He, he, he shows the world what his mission is all about. And now we want to go from Bethany to Bethlehem, okay? So this is a more traditional Christmas passage. Let me read a couple of verses from Luke chapter 2 just to, to orient us. So this is two miles away from Bethany, right? Not a far journey. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because, of, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, and he was registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn, right? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem, correct. Where was Jesus born? Not in the inn, correct. The inn, um, it's, don't, we, we, we have these connotations of like Marriott or Howard Johnson's, I don't know. Uh, the inn is just a guest room. It's where travelers can stay, extended family can stay, just people who are kind of along the way. And everybody's full because of the census. So yes, he's born in Bethlehem. Yes, he's not born in the inn. Was he born in a barn? No. I know all of our kind of portrayals of the nativity kind of give us, we were talking about this last week, kind of this beautiful, iconic Victorian barn thing with these exposed beams, the kinds of things that like wineries now emulate because it's so cool. Uh, that's not where Jesus was born. So they put him in a manger, which is a feeding trough, and that's why we just kind of naturally go there. Well, the, the animal feed trough is in a barn. But just almost every single scholar, archaeologist, and so on, you know, who understands first century Judaism in a poor village like Bethany, nobody had a barn in, Beth in, in Bethlehem, sorry. Nobody had a barn in Bethlehem. It's poor. Um, what they had was what was typical in the first century. You had a two-story home, and the living quarter, the, the rooms, the bedrooms are on the second floor. And guess what's on the first floor? That's the living area. And at night, that's where you bring in your animals. That's the stable. And it keeps the animals safe from thieves and varmints, you know, from, from the elements. It keeps them, you know, secure. And that's where the manger is. And so a lot of scholars believe that, well, okay, here's what's going on. Joseph and Mary, there's kind of a, they've got a little reputation that's preceded them. Uh, yes, it's full up, but come on, people. This woman's water has broken. She's in labor, and nobody has the decency to take her upstairs to a guest room where 
you know, okay, you're on the road. Well, you, you get out of here. She's having a baby. You know, she needs this room. Nobody has the decency to do that. We'll talk about that in just a second. So it's probably not a barn, it's, but it probably, it, it, it's likely either a house or, here's the other place that, that commentators and scholars, archaeologists think it could have been a barn. I mean, maybe <laughs> 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 we got some coffee. Now, um, <laughs> a cave, a cave. Um, Look at the front of your bulletin. Here's another, like, you know, one of those nativity scenes. It's not a Victorian barn. The front of your bulletin, there's this, you know, sort of old-time painting of the nativity, and they're in a cave. And that's not uncommon. It seems a, a little weird to us, but the early church fathers and mothers believed that Jesus was born in a cave. Do you know that the church of the nativity which is in Bethlehem still today, uh, the site was chosen over a cave, uh, a series of caves, one of which they thought was the cave where Joseph took Mary and that's where she delivered Jesus, in a cave. That's where the church of the nativity was built uh, by Constantine's mother, right? So this was, Constantine was the emperor under which Christianity became the official religion of Rome. And Constantine's mother oversaw the, um, the construction of this church on, a, on the site of a cave. Jerome, the uh, scholar in the fourth century who translated the Bible into Latin, we call it the Vulgate, he lived for years in a cave adjoining those caves that they thought were, you know, that's where, that's where Jesus was born. So there's a ton of, of evidence from the early church, you know, leading us to, to think they, they believed Jesus was born in a cave, not in a house and not in a barn. Anyway, so Jesus perhaps was born in a cave. So we've gone from this cave in Bethany to another cave in Bethlehem. And you're just kind of wondering, how in the world did it end like this? How could this be part of God's plan that Jesus, if he was born in a cave or even in the, the, the barn or the stable area of a house, like that just is not a place where a king is born. So here's this woman, her water's broke and everybody's in town. How come nobody has the decency to give them the privacy and the dignity of their own room, some comfort to deliver this baby as safely and as securely as possible? Well, Maybe it has something to do with their reputation. They're betrothed, but they're not married yet. She's pregnant. How did that happen? What's all this nonsense about the Holy Spirit making her pregnant? Some kind of supernatural birth. Can you believe the extent that they, this couple is going to cover up their shame and their guilt? What everybody knows is so obvious. They don't need a room. Put them in with the animals. How can that be God's plan? That God's son would come into the world under such suspicion, under such ignominy, under such disgrace and blame and shame that the best they can do is a feeding trough. Really? How, how, can, that, how can that be God's plan? Well, Jesus had come to this cave in Bethany 
to destroy death. He started in a, maybe a cave or certainly in the shame of something that nobody wanted to give them any kind of dignity. And you just kind of wonder, how, how can this be God's plan? I don't understand. That doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to kind of our worldly wisdom. And I'll jump ahead quickly to Jerusalem. Perhaps Jesus was born in a cave. We don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is that he certainly was buried in one. Maybe a third cave to consider here. Uh, in John 19, uh, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Another, another cave you know, carved out of the rock where they were burying people. Jesus, when, when he was born in Bethlehem, he didn't just take on our humanity. He took on our mortality, subject to death. But he didn't just take on our mortality, he took on our iniquity, which meant that he would die. This is what the prophets were pointing to. Isaiah talks about it in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, we've gone astray, each of us according to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what happened on the cross. God laid our sins, our iniquities on Jesus, not just sharing our mortality, but taking on our iniquity. How could that be God's plan? How in the world could God coming into the world end like that? And I just want to let you know, that's always been the plan. That's, that was always the plan. Peter stands up in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by kill, uh, and killed by the hands of lawless men. And this Jesus, God, raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He is the resurrection and the life, himself, right? Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy, basically, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, his own plan, his own intentionality, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which has now been manifested through the appearing or the, the, the epiphany, right, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This was all part of the plan to reveal himself to the world and to us as the resurrection and the life, that he would go from cave to cave to cave, destroying death. All right, let me just take a, Quick little hiatus here real quick and tell you about this article that popped up. And I, it was clickbait. And I just was like, what's that about? And I, it's this Wall Street Journal article talking about fake pork. <laughs> have, you, have you had an Impossible Whopper? At Burger King, they've got the meatless Whopper from the Impossible Meat People. They make Impossible Burgers. They make Impossible Bacon. They make Impossible Pork. And this article uh, titled, Is That Kosher? Rabbis Debate Plant-Based Pork. This was last month in the Wall Street Journal. And I just kind of got a kick out of this 
Because here's this whole debate from this, the impossible meat people trying to figure out how can they get in on this market that heretofore prior has not been open to any pork suppliers, right? You've got the entire worldwide Jewish community and the entire worldwide Arab community, both of which say pork's off limits. And now, you know, the impossible meat people, they're smelling profits. We've got plant-based pork. This is awesome. We're going to have such, a, we're going to have such a corner on this market and people are just going to, you know, Jewish people and Muslim people are just going to be gobbling up our fake pork. And so what they have to do is they have to get the rabbis and the imams to come and declare this plant-based pork to be kosher or halal. And this article, one of the representatives of the, the Jewish community who's de, who has to declare foods kosher, uh, this man, Mr. Kalman, said that this is possibly the most important decision for Judaism in the 21st century. Wow. The most important decision for Judaism in the 21st century, whether or not we can eat plant-based pork. High stakes, right? All right, keep that in mind for just a second. Most, most important decision for Judaism in the 21st century. Let's jump back to, to, to Bethany. Jesus and Martha. And Jesus says to Martha in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, right? And she's faithful. She's godly. She's holy. She remembers the prophet Daniel and how God promised that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says something remarkable. He doesn't, you know, Martha's, she's spot on. She nails it. You know, I know my brother's going to rise up at the last day. And he doesn't just affirm her hope in the day of God's future reckoning. Like Jesus doesn't say, good for you, Martha. You are right to believe in the coming resurrection. That's not what he says to her. Instead, listen to what he says in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the most important decision Martha would have to make in the first century. And Jesus is asking Martha this life or death question. Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe that I am the life? Do you believe in me? He's asking us the same question. This is the most important decision any of us can make in the 21st century. What do you believe about Jesus? It says he's the, the, the resurrection of life. What do you think about Martha's reply to that? Look at, look at what she does. So on the one hand, she gets it. She says, yes, Lord, right? She's affirming. Yes, of course, you, you, you are who you say you are. 
And then she says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. This is one of those wonderful places where God puts a woman center stage for all the world to listen to, to hear her testimony of, of faith in Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And, and this is completely in accord with the whole point of why John is writing his gospel. He gets to the end of chapter 20, and he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus came to take on your death? Do you believe that he came to die on a cross to take your sins, my sins, on his back, those stripes on his back, those whips that were you know, giving him those lashes by the Roman guards? Those are that picture that Isaiah gave us, that, that his, by his stripes we are healed, we are saved. That our sins were placed on him that he willingly went to the cross as our sin-bearing substitute. Do you believe that? Do you believe that by his resurrection from the grave, from that cave, from that tomb, that you with him are raised with him? Do you believe that Jesus is more than just this sort of figurehead for a religion among many religions? Do you believe that he is more than just the reason why we have so much beauty and light and celebration and sentimentality at Christmas? Do you believe that he is more than just a, a rabbi or a teacher that taught wise things? And yeah, people ought to listen and the world would be a much better place if they all had a little bit of religion. Do you believe that Jesus is your center? Do you believe that he is your life? Do you believe that he took on your death? Do you believe that he is your future? Do you believe that he is your eternity? Do you believe that he is your joy, your peace, your love? This is what Jesus is challenging Martha to agree to. This is what he's challenging us to agree to. What do you think of Martha's reply? I don't know that she quite gets it. Jesus is saying, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And I can imagine her like pausing, kind of blinking away the tears because her brother's dead and he's not, he hasn't been raised yet. You know, and she's trying to make sense of these strange words that Jesus is telling. Nobody's ever stood in front of her and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Nobody's ever stood in front of you and said, I'm the resur resurrection and the life, except Jesus. And how do you make sense of that? Like she's already told him that she believes her brother's going to live again at the resurrection on the last day, but this must have thrown her a curveball. How can a person be the resurrection? How can the person be life? And Jesus asked her point blank, but she doesn't answer him directly. Her response is wonderful, it's faithful, but it's a little bit muddled because she's asking, how can this be the plan? I don't understand. My brother's dead. And you're telling me these strange things. But I believe. I believe what I believe. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God. 
and that's what I'm holding on to. That's my center, and that's enough. In about 10 minutes later, she probably understood more fully the impact of on the resurrection of life, but in that moment, all she can hold on to was her center. And that was enough. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God who's coming into the world. What do you do, what do we do when we don't understand God's plan? When the sorrow and the sadness of life are juxtaposed with all the joy and the gladness of Christmas and you don't know how to feel. What should I be feeling? What should I be doing? You know, do I deny you know, what seems real and what's so sad and what's so awful? Do I just kind of put on a happy face and sing the carols and put up the lights and do the tree and the whole thing? You know, what do you do? What are, the, what are the people in Kentucky and Tennessee doing right now? It's Christmas. I mean, can you imagine the tornadoes ripping through there? All of the inflatables are gone. All the lights are gone. The, you know, everything's gone. Their houses are gone. Their loved ones are gone. God, I don't understand. Can you relate to your own sadness, your own loss, the grief and the confusion that you feel? I don't understand, God. Where is Jesus? Why isn't he here? He seems late. We don't have to understand. You don't have to get everything about Jesus. We just have to hold on to the center. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming to my cave, <laughs> who's coming into our world. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for you to minister to us um, whether we're sad or glad, whether we're sorrowful or joyful, and reveal more of who you are to us, that we would appreciate in deeper, more life-changing ways that you are the life, you are the resurrection. And Lord, would you graduate us from previous uh, understandings? Uh, would you take us deeper in our, in our appreciation of who Jesus is that we would strengthen in our faith, that we would uh, grow in our trust even when we don't understand, even when we're surrounded by sadness, or with the joy of resurrection, with the joy of your birth, with the joy of your destroying death, really transform our grief. Lord, thank you for having mercy on us, for coming to us, for coming to our cave, uh, for coming to each person here. And I pray for those who don't yet believe this is the most important decision that they can make. Would you help them to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? We pray in Jesus' name.